Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by John Dearborn, who's the author of Power Shifts, Congress and Presidential Representation. This book was recently published in 2021 by the University of Chicago Press, and it is a deep and fascinating dive, I would say even a page turner, um, in our understanding of the presidency, particularly in regard to how Congress has, over years, perhaps delegated some powers to that branch of government and the understanding of the president and the presidency as a representative um, entity. Um, But I'm going to let John tell us a little bit about that as well as about himself. Welcome to the podcast, John Dearborn. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this particular project? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me here today, Lily. It's a pleasure to be back on this podcast. Um, And thank you for um, chatting with me about my book. Um, So I'm John Dearborn. I'm a new assistant professor of political science at Vanderbilt University. Um, I was most recently a postdoc um, at Yale and prior to that had done my PhD in political science there. So the origin of this book is that it was my dissertation at Yale. um, And I can actually... Um, somewhat surprisingly, I think, pinpoint almost exactly when I really started to come up with the idea. So I think that I'd had notions of executive representation floating around in my head and, and thinking about that as an interest for some time. I was always interested in the presidency. But in the spring semester of 2015, um, I had an aha moment um, sitting in Steve Skronik's American Political Development Seminar. I don't exactly know why I had it in that moment, but we were talking about his um, some articles on ideas and political culture. And I wrote down in my notebook, um, you know, the claim that the president represents everyone, did this have anything to do with the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921? That was the first um, law that I covered that sort of came into my head. Um, I wrote that as a seminar paper um, in Steve's class um, that eventually became um, one of the two articles that sort of predated the book in the Journal of Policy History. And I would say in some ways that was sort of the theory uh, test and, and building case for this book, which was that I was actually somewhat surprised at how much evidence I saw that legislators and other political actors were explicitly talking about this idea that the president uniquely represents the national interest and that that should have a role in Congress's design of budget reform. Um, so that's the origin of the project anyway. Um, and and this project has, uh, I think, about three different things going on, and maybe I'm wrong about that. But um, one of the points that you're talking about is the role of ideas in political change. And that seems like it was kind of the aha moment in that seminar, possibly. Um, and also the, the particular understanding of the president and the presidency within the American sort of constitutional landscape and political landscape, um, and ultimately how Congress has sort of shifted some of that stuff around. I 
think those that's what's going on here. Absolutely. Um, and, and I really enjoyed reading this book because you really wove these things together in such a, uh, a sort of interesting and, and compelling way. So I wanted to start by asking you the bigger question or the biggest question that over sort of is the umbrella for the book is this role of the ideas in political change and adaptability um, and how we understand that in the United States. We have this constitutional system. It's written down in parchment. Um, Obviously, we've had a lot of discussion in the last couple of years about norms um, and sort of changes in them. But what about this sort of concept of the role of ideas in politics? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, your sort of three-part description of the book was was just spot on. Um, so I'm going to say first a little bit maybe about the the ideas aspect specifically, and then I'll address the question of, of how this relates to sort of thinking about the American constitutional order. So the reason this book ended up focusing so much in a general sense on how we know that ideas matter, for a lack of a better word, is just at some point... Once I became, you know, convinced in the Budget and Accounting Act case and started to find other cases where I thought Congress is making some decisions about institutional design based on the assumption that the president is a better representative of the national interest than individual legislators or bureaucrats. And that perception, as you know, in the book changes over time, but in the early 20th century, it's very strong. So demonstrating that in a rigorous way and in a way that could sort of make the different cases that I cover um, intelligible and and comparable was was a real challenge for this project. So, um, you know, claiming that ideas can directly influence and condition political change, for me, um, I wanted to anchor those claims about causal significance in some hard empirical evidence, some explicit mechanisms. So the framework in chapter two is meant to specifically show uh, one big thing, which is how do ideas link together moments of institutional choice and design, the moments that Congress passes some laws that change the role of the presidency, and then the broader durability of those reforms over time. So the specific question then, how does that relate to our constitutional order? In this book, I describe presidential representation as a developmental claim. Um, The reason that I do that is that I think this idea that the president, first off, is a representative at all, but to be more specific, that the president is potentially the superior representative of the people in the national interest, I think that claim gets stronger over time, and most consequentially, it starts to anticipate and become associated with reforms that increasingly are challenging uh, the existing system of government. That doesn't mean that there's nobody at the founding that thinks about this. Um, There's definitely some founders that are talking about notions of the president as a representative. Um, Jeremy Bailey's book, The Idea of Presidential Representation, is particularly good on this. But for me, the reason why fundamentally I think it's a developmental claim that in some ways challenges the Constitution is that it's usually associated with critiques of the Constitution. Critiquing members of Congress as localistic is in some ways a critique of congressional representation as set up in the Constitution itself. Um, So then the next question is, so what exactly is the work the idea is doing and why why is it so important in, in that constitutional sense? Well, developmentally, the idea is anticipating reforms that are not 
unconstitutional, but that are reworking constitutional relationships, making the president the lead agenda setter in budgeting, in economic policy, um, even further than lead agenda setter, actually making the trade agreements um, in the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act of 1934. But that also means that they really depend on belief that the president is the best representative of the nation as a whole. And I think that's where this gets at this question of how does the idea relate to the Constitution? If you're starting to rework institutional relationships, you better have enduring belief in that idea. And when that belief goes away, those reforms get significantly challenged in the 70s and 80s. And and I love the way that you sort of talk about how Congress also boxed itself in um, in terms of trying to perhaps undo some of the things it had done. Um, but I, I did want to ask you a little bit more because, you know, as somebody who teaches too many Federalist Papers to undergraduates, um, the, the, the sort of idea at the founding was not, per se, for the most part or the majority, um, and there was a lot of disagreement about everything, obviously, um, that the president was going to be this kind of national representative. Can you explain a little bit about that in terms of the structure of the office and how the president is elected? Sure. Well, the the first thing, of course, is, as you well know, is, you know, we have an electoral college. We we don't have direct election at the founding. And, and there are moves to, you know, change that very quickly, um, including the 12th Amendment that puts the president and the vice president on the same ticket. But the, the way that I would describe it is, I think at the founding, the role of the president is obviously chief executive, um, is sort of paramount. Um, I think that the, the key thing about the president as an independent officer is, you know, in some ways to uh, obviously provide energy in the executive, as Hamilton put it, as a leading character of good government, but also that you're, the fear of the founders to some extent is about um, an overly strong Congress. So you get executive independence partly for that reason. But what you don't explicitly see at the founding is the notion that, well, the president is going to do something like set Congress's agenda, or the president is going to have a mobilized popular following, or certainly not that the president is going to, you know, again, claim to be the better uh, spokesperson for the nation as a whole than Congress itself. Uh, those are things that start to emerge over time, potentially pretty early. Andrew Jackson, of course, um, makes the claim to be the direct representative of the people and challenges Congress's legitimacy in that way. But there's a difference, I think, between the 19th century version of this claim and what you start seeing in the early 20th century. In the 19th century, as, to take Jackson as a case, you see presidential representation associated with claims of an electoral mandate, uh, claims that the president has the right to veto policies, not just on constitutional grounds, but just because he doesn't like the policy and, and speaks for the people. Um, and it's also invoked for um, and associated with the removal power. So, for example, Jackson firing Treasury secretaries and again saying, well, he's the one that represents the people. But in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, you see uh, reformers, progressives among them specifically saying, well, something like the veto is not enough to gain a national perspective in 
legislating. They think that the primary problem of American politics, you know, rightly or wrongly, is localism and localism in Congress on things like the tariff or on things like budgeting. And so they start to associate this notion that the president is the spokesman of the national interest with the idea that he or she should be setting the legislative agenda and that the separation of powers should basically be more formally bridged between president and Congress, um, almost approximating a parliamentary system in one sense. But the difference between that and the founding, you know, at the founding, you do have the provision that the con- that the president is supposed to report on the State of the Union and can recommend measures. So that that's there. It's it's not absolutely unanticipated that something like that could happen. But when you look at things like the Budget Act or the Employment Act, you are now formally making the president responsible for agenda setting, and you are making it a routine thing that all presidents are supposed to do. And that's a very significant shift in the system. And you go through the first part of the book, because the book is divided into like the, the sort of trajectory of how this happens. Um, with regard to how Congress, in a certain sense, in the words that I would choose, delegates power to the executive um, that then sort of changes the constitutional structure um, and and sort of puts the, the president in this position of being more representative of the whole. And then the second part of the book, you sort of talk about where Congress tried to reform some of that a bit. Um, so, and you use these really interesting pieces of legislation and the the dialogue around them, the conversation that members had around them as the means to sort of look at this. And you've already mentioned the Budget Act. Um, again, lots of us pay lots of attention to the Budget Act of 1921. It's always rolling off the tips of all of our tongues. Um, and the Employment Act, as well as another a number of the other reorganizations of the executive branch. Can you talk about how you identified these particular pieces of legislation as key to sort of building this theory? Sure. Um, so as you said, the book is structured in two parts. Um, so the, I think the criteria for which legislation I ended up looking at was um, cases where Congress is consciously and actually building up the presidency as an institution Uh, So the institutional presidency, as I define it, I know there's a lot of great work on this. Um, To me, there's two key components of it. Uh, One is that the president is going to have formal agenda setting responsibility. And the other piece of that is that the president is going to have some sort of enhanced organizational capacity, particularly to help with that agenda setting responsibility. So in the first period of laws um, that I looked at, you see in most cases, both of those dimensions are coming up in the legislation. So for the Budget Act, it's the presidential budget and the Bureau of the Budget and the Executive Branch. Uh, in the reciprocal trade agreement case, that one is actually, you know, it's it's even beyond agenda setting. It's the president actually making bilateral trade agreements, but it has a similar character of, we need the president to take the lead on this policy issue. Um, In the Reorganization Act of 1939, the agenda setting piece is that the president, with some qualifications, proposes reorganization plans to Congress, and then Congress, if it chooses, can veto them. So that's not just pure agenda setting, but it's actually a very, very strong agenda setting power where what the president wants happens unless Congress vetoes it. Um, And then FDR very quickly uses that to create the executive office of the president. 
in the Employment Act of 1946, we get the President's Economic Report, and on the organizational side, the Council of Economic Advisors. And then on the National Security Act, which I have as a contrast case, um, on the organizational side, among other things, you get the National Security Council. So identifying those laws, I think each of them in some very important policy areas, you, you see them building the institutional presidency. What actually was in some ways particularly interesting to me um, was discovering that each of those laws had, I thought, such a clear counterpart in the 1970s and 80s. So, you know, the Congressional Budget and Empowerment Control um, Act of 1974 is clearly the analog to the 1921 Budget Act. And the War Powers Resolution, I think, is a pretty good analog to the National Security Act. But some of the other ones maybe surprised me or I hadn't initially thought about until I was doing more research. So the fact that you have something like the Reorganization Act of 1977, and then, of course, the Supreme Court case that undoes the legislative veto in 1983, um, or the Full Employment and Balance Growth Act, um, usually known as Humphrey Hawkins of 1978. I think that's a piece of legislation that is usually thought of as not being particularly significant. But of course, that's a really good analog for the Employment Act. So it just it, it set up um, a nice framework for me in two senses. One is that within each period of time that I analyzed, I could you know make some comparisons and contrasts between the laws in the same period. But then I was able to make comparisons over time within the same policy area, too. Um, and I wanted to ask you about, as, as you, you made the note that the National Security Reorganization Act in 1947 and, and the work that followed in 1948 is kind of a contrast to the other acts that kind of um, the, the reasoning behind them, because they all sort of look the same in terms of, as you note, the organizational capacity that that the, is given to the president to operate in this particular way. Um, can you explain how, in reading the archival work that you did, you saw some of the distinctions with regard to the National Security Act versus all these others during this period of time? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, let me first say maybe very precisely what work I think the idea of presidential representation is doing in, in the four cases where I do think it's especially influential. So budgeting, trade, employment, and reorganization. My claim isn't, as, as I know you know, my claim isn't that the idea causes those acts to happen. It's very precisely about how it influences the design of them. So for budgeting, for example, the proximate cause of budget reform is massive debt from World War I. But then there's a bunch of different designs considered, and my claim is presidential representation influences the presidential budget choice. For, um, for the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act, Great Depression, decline in world trade is the proximate cause. But you can't explain the choice without presidential representation. Employment Act, it's um, among other things, you have so many American GIs about to return home. There's fears of returns to mass unemployment. So that's the cause. But again, the design is presidential representation. Uh, so here's where the National Security Act then looks different. It's not that people don't talk about the president having a national perspective. And in, and in fact, they think one purpose of that act is to try to get a more national perspective and holistic perspective on national security and foreign policy issues. But legislators, rightly or wrongly in that act, continually come up against the fact that they think the president has significant uh, pre-existing authority 
as commander-in-chief under the Constitution. And this is just very different than how they talked about what they were doing in those previous acts uh, from the 20s to the 1946 Employment Act. In each of those cases, you know, there was pretty clear recognition that the authority that they were granting the president was in a sense, new authority, that it was a new responsibility, that they were fundamentally changing the system in some way. Um, The Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act case is a particularly good one on this, where everybody is very, very clear that they're you know, fundamentally changing the way that tariff policy had worked for a century beforehand. But in the National Security Act, it's almost like Congress is trying to figure out a way to get the institutional presidency developed in this realm, but they think the president already has so much authority and they're finding a balance as just to how to fit those two things together. So that's why I say that one's design does not depend on presidential representation. Um, but its its structure is very much like the others because it does the same thing. But as you note, it sort of finds itself drawing on Article Two powers that already exist as opposed to, you know, sort of maybe president should do this because he at this point is the representative of the people. Um, and, and so, as you say, you set this up in the first part. Here are here's budgeting, here's trade, here's organization, here's national security that Congress sort of moves some power to the president and gives the president the capacity to also operate in this sort of national capacity. Um, Then in the second half of the book, you talk about Congress has some second thoughts. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we go through this period in the post-Vietnam, post-Watergate era where Congress is trying to draw some stuff back to itself or at least take it away from the president. Um, because of what they saw as, you know, aggrandizement in the imperial presidency. Can you go through the examples there that are the sort of parallels to the first part of the book? Absolutely. So I think um, a good way to, to, you know, maybe state what this book is doing in one sentence is that Congress's perceptions of the validity of presidential representation influence their actions in lawmaking about presidential power. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but the key variable, as it were, that's that's changing between period one and period two, at least that I focus on, is in the first period, you know, again, as perhaps it sounds very naive, but there is just such a widespread view that, you know, the president takes this national perspective. It it is in some ways hard to believe even to me, but, you know, you read it so much and it's not even just in congressional debates, it's in, you know, newspapers, it's even in novels. Um, And then in the second period after Watergate and after Vietnam, and, you know, there's other things too, but those two sort of really, really crystallize this decline. It's almost like the political culture and and polity all at once are like, wait a second, what if the president doesn't really represent the national interest all the time? What if we can't count on that anymore? And so you you get the terms of debate uh, about presidential power are very much um, on those grounds of questioning whether you can trust presidents to act in the national interest. So 
the policy areas covered in that second part are the same. Um, so I, I think I'll go in roughly order. So the Congressional Budget and Impoundment Control Act of 1974, broadly speaking, does two things. Um, it creates, of course, a separate, a separate congressional budget process and it creates a congressional budget office. So in a sense, it's creating institutional processes and just institutions in the case of the CBO to rival what it had given the president before. Um, Notably, it doesn't take away the president's agenda setting power, um, but it's kind of trying to diminish it and it it layers over it. And the key claims that legislators are making in these debates One is, of course, doubting that presidential representation can be trusted as much. Uh, But the second thing is the claims that are resurging are in many ways the ones that in the first period kind of lost in the debates. So first is that Congress can, in fact, uh, represent the people as a whole potentially better than the president. You see a resurgence of that claim. But perhaps even more consequentially, you see um, lawmakers turn more to invoking their formal constitutional prerogatives. So, of course, in budgeting, it would be, you know, their Article I authority over raising revenue. Um, Another case is the Trade Act of 1974. Uh, So now one important caveat there is that by this point, now tariffs, which had for so long been probably considered primarily in domestic terms, are really part of foreign affairs. And that makes it more difficult for Congress to turn this back. But what you get in the Trade Act of 1974 is the president can propose multilateral agreements through a fast track process. They can't be filibustered. They have to be considered. That's pretty strong agenda setting power. But Congress is now insisting that they have to give their affirmative vote for these policies. And that's different than what was proposed by the Nixon administration, which was that maybe Congress could veto the president's trade agreements. Uh, Ultimately, the pushback on that law is just to give Congress a more affirmative voice on things. And again, it's on the same ground. We represent the people as a whole, and we have Article I authority over tariffs. Um, In the case of the Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act of 1978, The primary takeaway for me there is that, you know, that act starts off talking about maybe giving the president more responsibility, defining how the president's economic report is going to be proposed. But but one of the biggest legacies of that act really is the mandate that it gives the Fed, the Federal Reserve, about unemployment and about combating inflation. And to me, what that really signifies is Congress is really recognizing now the Fed as primary short-term economic actor, uh, as opposed to, say, the president and the Council of Economic Advisors. The Reorganization Act case, a little bit of a complex one, but basically uh, Congress is starting to doubt, you know, do presidents really want a a rational reorganization of the executive branch compared to members of Congress? And they give Jimmy Carter some renewed authority over that after they had declined to renew it for Richard Nixon. But the vulnerability of that law was that legislative veto feature where Congress could veto presidential plans. The Supreme Court declares that provision invalid in 1983, and that's caused many, many problems in congressional presidential relations ever since. But it's another symptom of this sort of turn to formalism 
which is that, you know, the court says there is a single procedure for how the legislative process is supposed to work. And that is Congress proposes, the president decides what to do. And of course, the legislative veto basically had reversed that. The contrast case, finally, the War Powers Resolution, you see intense congressional pushback. You see them saying, we can't trust the president to represent the national interest in war making. Vietnam has shown us this. Congress is the better representative of the people. Congress has Article I authority over war. But there, like in the National Security Council uh, debates, you see Congress almost restrains itself from going further than it could have because they are worried about infringing on the president's authority as commander in chief. So again, national security has this qualitative difference than some of these other policy areas. And and particularly, we have these issues around uh, war powers and and national security during the Cold War, um, where you know again the president has been given a lot of power and capacity given our sort of strategic disposition during that time. Um, and Congress doesn't really have, and we've now had these debates about like, how do we reel in the nuclear process um, in this post-Cold War period? Uh, because the president seems to have a lot of power to push the button as it were. Um, and, and, and representing us in that capacity. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you um, about you know, sort of this idea of presidential representation, um, because it's, it isn't something that is regularly debated. Um, and it is something that we often think about because this is the only office that is elected by the entire country. Um, and that, you know, Congress in so many ways, famously, obviously tip O'Neill, all politics is local. Um, and so how do we, how do we sort of find ourselves now in this position where we have this representative who we think is the voice of the people, but maybe not, given your research. And Congress maybe sometimes is the voice of the people, but also maybe not. Um, And how do we understand that in the context of our constitutional democracy in the United States? So one thing to say, as it, it, the way you've sort of contrasted, you know, the president and the con- and Congress's representative claims, there's definitely an enduring tension there. And at least one suggestion of this book um, is, you know, the respective perceptions of who has the stronger claim can change over time, to be sure. There's always some tension there. There's tensions in both periods that I talk about. You get defenders and proponents or opponents of each claim. But it's certainly true that it seems like one one side is more influential, as it were. But the more general idea... So, so one of the original motivations of this project is that... I think the way that we think about presidential representation today is mostly as a a standard to sort of judge presidents. So, uh, you know, the media does this in particular. Um, Just looking at the New York Times periodically, you'll sometimes see this come up. So there's an evaluation of the performance of the occupant of the office against the truism that they're supposed to represent all the people. Now, we know from really good political science research that presidents all are going to fall short of that exalted standard to some degree. So they, of course, need to act as partisan leaders. Um, They need to forge electoral coalitions. They need to not only get their base states on board with them and mobilize their voters, but they also need to focus on particular swing states in the electoral college. So so there's certainly, you know, some some sort of built-in ways that this claim is limited. But... 
what interested me was that I think we sometimes have missed, and I wanted to bring out the transformational possibilities that have been associated with this idea. And I want to stress that I, as you know, I don't take a position as an individual in this book on whether this claim is true. What was interesting to me is just how the perceptions of it change and more specifically what the impact of that is. So where are we now? Um, Well, I think what maybe distinguishes the last couple of years uh, on this issue of presidential representation is we know that presidents fall short of this idea we certainly know that we're we've been in you know a more partisan era, arguably since the late 1970s, um, more polarized times. Um, I think the fact, for example, as Francis Lee's work shows, that control of Congress is actually up for grabs again in many elections, maybe changes some of the calculations of legislators in a way that in the earlier parts of the 20th century would have been different. But uh, to, to bring up, um, you know, our previous president, Donald Trump, here's where I think he stands out on this. And this tells us something about the claim. Even presidents that were partisans that prioritize swing states felt the need to claim legitimacy based on this idea to at least, you know, portray themselves as striving to represent everyone. At some point, Trump basically decided that he didn't need to do that. Now, on election night when he won in 2016, he did make this traditional promise that he would strive to represent everyone. But by 2019, um, in an interview with Time Magazine about his re-election strategy, he actually was asked, you know, how are you going to reach out to more people beyond your base for re-election? And he said, I think my base is so strong, I don't need to do that. So Trump made a calculation that you know, I don't need this idea, this pretense anymore. Um, And that's something that's new. So the question going forward, among others, is, well, Joe Biden, of course, took a different approach to this idea. He has invoked it time and time again in his campaign when he won uh, as president himself. He is really betting at, at some degree that he can restore Uh, this idea that maybe by modeling a different conception of leadership in contrast to Trump, that that will rebuild this expectation and trust in the presidency in this way. And I think it's a really, really open question as to whether that can actually work. And so in in this regard, we, we have this polarized situation in the United States. And so it's really hard for anybody to really claim in a certain sense that they're representing the entire country. Yes. Uh, one, one, um, account of this came from the journalist John Dickerson um, in The Atlantic a few years ago in 2018. So he wrote that no one man or woman could, of course, represent the varied competing interests of um, 327 million citizens. So yes, in our polarized society, and particularly maybe a polarized, fragmented media environment, it may very well be the case that it's hard for anybody to claim this standing. I do think that there is something to be said for presidents at least um, trying to do this. But here's the developmental dilemma. We still, for all the pushback in the 1970s, I, I would say that Uh, You know, the presidency, of course, wasn't displaced from its center of of American government. Uh, We still expect presidents to have a legislative program. Um, But the legitimacy of the president's place, that enlarged role 
really did depend on this notion of representing the national interest to some degree. And with that assumption in question, the rest of the government kind of gets thrown off kilter. Uh, I think what the 1970s and 80s did, and perhaps the Trump presidency did as well, was it has robbed the presidency of its rationale. And once you see that, you see how skepticism of presidential representation fits very awkwardly on the governing arrangements that had been erected on that idea. I think this problem has grown worse. And I actually think that Joe Biden um, has a very clear-eyed recognition uh, about what that might mean. So at one point, um, a couple of months ago, he was asked about his promise to unite the country. Wasn't that maybe a little bit naive sounding? And Biden said that, you know, he recognizes that some people say, well, what are you talking about? Unite the country. Biden said, you can't function in our system without consensus other than abusing power at the executive level. I don't think what he's saying there is any presidential action without unity or unanimity is an abuse of power. But I think what he's suggesting there is if you don't have at least a modicum of consensus on what the national interest is in some cases, then it's very difficult for presidents to maintain a broad sense of legitimacy for what they're doing. And the the biggest problem also seems to be to actually be able to discern what the national interest is. <laughs> That's a very good point. So um, in the first period that I talk about, you know, for, for better or worse, each of those laws that depend on presidential representation, there seems to be at least some base level of what the goal of the law is. So with budgeting, ostensibly, the goal is we need to get, you know, this major debt from World War One under control, the presidency is going to be the guide to help do that. With the Trade Act, it's you know, Congress has been log rolling too much, we have got to get, you know, lower tariffs and free trade, we assume the president is best positioned to do that. With reorganization, it's we need to figure out a way to rationally reorganize the executive branch after the proliferation of New Deal agencies. And with the Employment Act, the sort of fundamental policy agreement is that we want to, uh, you know, have maximum employment consistent with economic growth. So you're right, they're able to at some level define a national interest. And, you know, it's it's hard to see other than maybe the bipartisan infrastructure bill today, for example, it, it's, it's harder to see that today. And I, I think that hurts the president's capacity to sort of maybe stand out on that dimension. And so if we have this, this sort of situation where we are now, it's the presidency is a little bit unmoored, then is that is that would that be a correct reading of sort of our understanding of the role of the president being or the presidency being one of now a national representative, but also at the same time, not necessarily having the capacity to claim a consensus in a lot of capacities? So I, I like your use of the word unmoored. Um, and this actually, I, I think one indicator that uh, presidential authority was perceived to be, you know, risky resting on this representational basis is seen in the response of conservatives in the late 70s and 80s. Um, 
in how they turned to presidential power after the 1970s. So I realized this gets, this is both the end of this book and of course gets into the other book um, with Steve Skronik and Des King, Phantoms of a Beleaguered Republic. But here's the insight that advocates of what's called the unitary executive theory, which among other things claims that under Article 2, the president possesses the entirety of the executive power. A lot of those advocates of unitary theory do make these kinds of representational claims uh, that the president is the best representative of the people, that the president is a direct representative of the people. They tend to make those claims in, in particularly plebiscitary terms, sort of mandate claims, more narrow partisan claims, whereas in most of the cases that I talk about in the book, I'm thinking of it more in terms of stewardship, so the notion of national interest representation representing all the people. But the Unitarians recognize that as much as they may or may not believe in this idea, that it's vulnerable. And I think that gives you some insight into the fact that they're trying to sort of ground their view of, of presidential authority in a reading of the Constitution. Uh, and you know whether that reading is right or not, I happen to think that there are some problems with it. But they see the Constitution and grounding presidential authority in the Constitution as a way to respond to the problems the presidency faced after Watergate and Vietnam. And, and so in terms of understanding the presidency that we're living through now and also thinking about the construction of it at the founding, um, and again, you're talking about you know, some of the the thinkers, conservative thinkers who want to take it back to the original sort of understanding. Um, is there any way to sort of layer these pieces on top to make it make sense to us at this point? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So maybe the hopeful thing to take away from the book um, is that, you know, we've seen time and time again uh, in, in different ways that Americans, reformers, Congress itself can remake the presidency and its place in our political order to a very significant extent. So it's not like we don't have past examples, not necessarily that we need to do the same things as before, but they give us some cues as to what we might think about and just the fact that this is doable. The presidency, of course, is not a static office. Now, as to how to fit some of these sometimes in conflict, intention, understandings together, I think the real one of the real tests right now, um, as we alluded to before in the discussion of Biden, is so Biden is making a bet on unity, as it were, that he can sort of you know restore and model this conception of leadership, and maybe he can. Again, he's able to do this in contrast to to Trump's dismissal of the idea. That's probably helpful to him in a sense. Um, as I said, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, I think, is a sort of classic kind of example. Um, it's akin to Dwight Eisenhower, you know, maybe taking the national perspective on proposing the infra interstate highways in the 1950s. Um, but of course, it's possible that this approach might not take off. And then the next thing is, well, what are we left with? So one thing we could be left with is that maybe Trump was right. Maybe, you know, trying to represent everyone in some meaningful sense isn't what the presidency does anymore. Maybe it, maybe it's a more factional office in the system that we have. Um, you know, that approach is a more personalistic presidency. It's more narrow mandate claims of representation than stewardship. 
it's a unitary executive uh, in Trump's view. Uh, and it's one in which I think presidents are really prioritizing following all of their own, pushing their control of the executive branch to the limit. And I think that approach erodes, you know, notions of institutional accountability and collective responsibility. So in my opinion, that's the approach to avoid. But that's one that we've seen out there. Yeah. And Another alternative. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, I just remember that Bill Clinton in 1996 was oftentimes referred to as the 51st senator when he was running for re-election, um, because particularly the, not the 51st senator, I assume the 101st senator and the third senator from California, um, <laughs> because of the way he was sort of sort of trajectory that he was following, and particularly around military bases, that he was not necessarily acting as a national representative but much more particularistically around a particular state that he needed in the Electoral College column. Absolutely. Presidents have significant incentives to to do that, particularly in areas where they have discretion, um, like um, Andrew Reeves and Doug Kreiner's research on presidential particularism shows um, with natural disaster declarations, base closures, as you say, so I think, you know, especially while we still have an electoral college, that, that incentive is, is there. At least one question is, you know, so presidents do that. But of course, presidential representation is a relative claim. So the question is, are presidents more localistic than members of Congress, less localistic than members of Congress? So I think Trump uh, actually brought out some of these uh, aspects of particularism, especially strongly, and just made them um, more unambiguous than they had been before. So, for example, when he complained about, you know, having to help California after wildfires, that is unimaginable for presidents before him. But on the other hand, what Trump was sort of doing was in a very exaggerated way, making explicit something that we sort of knew, which is that, you know, presidents have to address disasters everywhere, but they might be particularly attentive about doing it in Florida, for example. So I think the alternative to the Trump approach, uh, at least right now, is, you know, another way to think about it is, can we make a more avowedly partisan presidency something that we can more broadly live with? So at least one thing to think about there would be, how do you, you know, tap some of the very real potentials of the presidency, while also preventing them from turning both their own administrations and also their political parties into direct extensions of their personal will? And you see some signs that people are thinking about this um, in different ways. So for example, right now, Congress is reconsidering how much direct control presidents should have over executive agencies, over inspectors general, um, you know, uh, over the Department of Justice. At the same time, you know, there's great scholars of political parties, um, like Julia Zari, for example, who talk about, you know, what kinds of reforms might we potentially want to think about with our parties and our system of presidential selection to try to help presidents, you know, to help the parties reconcile the full array of interests and views within their coalition, and to try to come up with presidential nominees that maybe are more managers of broad coalitions than presidents who are going to come into office with a very narrow, mobilized, factional following. Um, I think our, if there's one thing that our system is probably at least a little bit better off with, it's presidents that even within their own party might have to be good at coalition management and not presidents that just, you know, you have a personal following and you're just going to rely on that. And so that that would 
sort of move away from the sort of the potential for the cult of personality around any particular individual who is running for this very powerful office. Um, if, if they do have to manage broad coalitions within their party, even if they don't have to make deals with the other party. And maybe, you know, this would be me at my most idealistic, who knows, but maybe the skills of, you know, being a little bit more of a coalitional leader in your own party uh, translate to at least slightly better attempts to represent the national interest and and bridge some of those, you know, different perspectives on the country um, outside of your political party as well. So, John, now that you've finished this book and it's out and you have the book, with um, Skoranek and King on uh, Phantoms of the Beleaguered Republic. What are you working on now? So um, there's two things. Um, one is a project that, that I've actually worked on for some time dating back to grad school. It's a paper on the origins of U.S. federal tax policy and the role of Congress and presidents in that. So that's a very different kind of project. But our modern system of taxation, um, corporate taxes, uh, income taxes, and inheritance taxes, all was sort of established on a durable basis between 1909 and 1916. So I'm, I've been exploring a bit as to why um, that happened. Um, but the broader project that maybe follows up more on power shifts and on phantoms of a beleaguered republic, um, I would like to look more at presidential power after the rights revolution. So Turning back to the 1970s again, um, in both books, the 1970s come up as so pivotal. And so I'm just, again, I have to, I have to look more there. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of a sense of what I mean by that. Um, I think that uh, obviously by the 1970s, there's a whole administrative state that presidents are increasingly recognizing, you know, I can do a lot of things at that. And it's not that presidents didn't act unilaterally or try to control administration before, but the capacities of what they can do are very substantial. Uh, At least one dimension, I think, of what's going on there is that, of course, bureaucracies and administrative agencies have a lot of roles in administering, you know, some of the great acts of the rights revolution. Um, You know, there's divisions of civil rights in different agencies, like in the Department of Health, Education and Welfare. And so I have a particular interest in looking at to what extent did presidents want to gain more control over administration because they recognized the role that bureaucracies were playing in rights-related issues? So at least one, I think, illustrative example of this is um, the Nixon administration's fights with the Office of Civil Rights in Hue in the 1970s. So that office was responsible for, you know, helping implement and speed up school desegregation in the South. But there were a lot of advisors and Nixon himself in the White House who were uncomfortable, you know, with the pace that they were trying to go, because, of course, Nixon had the Southern strategy. They they had a lot of these Southern states and voters now that were part of their coalition. And so you saw a tension between the White House and between Hugh precisely on this issue. Uh, I think that tells us something about this turn towards presidents on both sides feeling the need to, you know, gain some influence over administrative agencies, whether that would be to try to maybe, you know, curtail or limit the expansion or realization of rights, or to try to expand them. I'm thinking there of Barack Obama and the DACA program, for example. Uh, But that, I think that's an under, I don't want to say underappreciated, because there's good work on it. But there's more to the story. 
about the turn toward presidential administration and the unitary executive. And I want to go into that. Well, I look forward to that when it becomes a book to um, talking to you about it and having another page turner about the executive branch, which, you know, sometimes people don't think they're page turners, but I thought that scholarship <laughs> was really a page turner. Um, so uh, I want to thank John Dearborn for joining me today to talk about power shifts, Congress and presidential representation published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021. I assume one can purchase this at the University of Chicago Press website. Is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence that you would like to give a shout out to? Sure. So I, I actually looked this up to be sure of it because I, I knew this question was coming. Um, so back in my home state of Connecticut, at least one independent bookseller um, near New Haven um, in Madison, Connecticut is called RJ Julia. And I just checked and they apparently, uh, if you email or call them, can order the book. So that's one. I appreciate that. And I thank you for joining me today to talk about PowerShift. Thank you so much for having me, Lily. It's a real pleasure to be here.